Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This is God's word. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have not, I, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Well, let's turn together to Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6, page 1235 of the Bibles in the pews. Uh, we visited Hadrian's Wall during the summer, and we visited the Roman Army Museum along Hadrian's Wall. It was a great little museum with uh, some videos and, and, and uh, uh, exhibitions that sought to recreate what life was like for the soldiers who manned the wall uh, in the early centuries um, that the wall, uh, first, second, and third uh, century when the wall was in operation. One of the, the worst things apparently for soldiers was the, the long nights on guard duty. There they were, standing on the wall in freezing temperatures in darkness, peering into Scotland. Now, do you know, Scotland, <laughs> this isn't in my notes, I think I should maybe just keep going, eh? Um, um, Scotland it regularly features as, as one of those, you know, top 10 destinations in the world at the moment, and, and for really good reasons. I, I bet it didn't for those Roman soldiers. It probably was, it seemed like the very edge of the world. It was the very edge of the world uh, for them, and those nights never seemed to end. It would have been easy for them, and they spoke about this in the video, it would have been easy for them to fall asleep on guard duty, but the, the punishments for falling asleep on guard duty were, were pr pretty severe. You could be put to death for falling asleep on guard duty. In fact, if you look at military history, really since Roman times to today, uh, it is possible that, that uh, armies would put to death a soldier who falls asleep on guard duty. Commanders knew how, how absolutely critical it is that those who are in the battle and who are there to keep watch and, and to participate and to be engaged, that they do not fall asleep. And in this letter to the church in Sardis, this letter that we're looking at in chapter 3 of Revelation, Jesus, this great commander, he finds his church here asleep. You see his command to them in verse 2, wake up, very abrupt. They're in a terribly bad situation, but it's made so much worse by the fact that they are asleep and they're not really aware of what's going on. This is possibly the, 
uh, severest of the letters that uh, there are in, in these early chapters of Revelation. And, and here's what I want us to see tonight. Very simple, really. It, it, it asks us a question. This passage, I think, asks us a simple question. And that is, why sleep when you can walk with Jesus? Okay? Hopefully we'll remember that. Why sleep when you can walk with Jesus? Why spiritually sleep when you can walk with Jesus Christ? Because there's something tremendous on offer to those who overcome so why sleep when we can walk with Jesus? Well, we're going to divide this up very simply. I didn't even bother putting this up on the PowerPoint. There's a problem uh, going on in the church. There's a remedy, and there's a promise. So that's really just how we're going to look at this and make some comments as we go through it. Prom prom problem, remedy, and promise. Well, what's the problem? What's going on? I know your works, Jesus says. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So that's possibly the most critical thing that Jesus says of any of his churches. They have a reputation for being a living, vibrant church. That was what other people saw. Presumably, their neighboring churches, the ones that were also getting this, these letters, presumably they thought of the church at Sardis as alive and vibrant. But it was what Jesus saw that really mattered. Because Jesus' analysis of his church is not by reputation, but by reality. The reputation was with men and not with God. He knows exactly what is going on, and he says to them, you are dead. There's a great gap between how things appeared and how things really were. It doesn't seem to have been troubled by false teachers, nor does it really seem to have been persecuted very severely. John Stott says this, he says, what a live church you have in Sardis, visitors would exclaim with admiration when they attended its services or watched its activities. And so, no doubt, it appeared. Its congregation was probably quite large in those days and growing, while its programs doubtless included many excellent projects. It had no shortage of money, talent, or human resources. There was every indication of life and vigor. And yet, this reputation hid a serious problem, so much so that Jesus pronounces it to be dead or almost dead. Now, Sardis itself was actually a city that had seen uh, better days. In the past, it had been important. It had enjoyed many industries, but now it was sort of just living off its reputation. Maybe you've had that experience. You know, your, your parents have told you about a place, uh, you know, maybe some place that they used to go and visit, and, and you find yourself there. And you think, my goodness, that this place is such a dump now compared to where, how my parents spoke about it. And, and, and it seems that that was really what was happening in Sardis. It, it, it had been a, really quite at the center of things, but now its days, best days were behind it. And it looks like the church had sort of mirrored society. We're much more prone to do that than we might think. The best days of the church were behind it, and all the energy that there was about the church was just from the life that was there in the past rather than what was there in the present. As I was thinking about this, a particular image came to my mind, and that was of my father sharpening chisels in his workshop with a big old bench grinder. Now, some of you will, will know what that is, a big, big bench grinder, quite a heavy thing with two great big abrasive wheels on either side of it. And... He would turn it on. It had a fairly powerful induction motor. It would take a wee while to, to ramp up to speed, and he would sharpen the chisels, and then he would turn it off, 
And those two wheels would just keep on turning for maybe five or seven or ten minutes. They would keep on turning. But, but they were only turning because of the, the life that had been in the motor some time ago, not because there was anything vital in it there now. They were just keeping going because of the past. And this was Sardis. It was, it was running down. There was no vital spark at the heart of it. The activity was there, was just produced from the past. And Jesus calls them dead. What do you think he means whenever he calls a church dead? There's a couple of ways of, of taking this. I'm not really sure which it is, so I'm going to suggest both of them to you and let you see what you think. In the Bible, to be dead is often a reference to, be, to being spiritually dead, to, to be unconverted. So Ephesians chapter 2, for example, Ephesians 2 verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the, rulers of the, king, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So, so, so it's talking about spiritually death, unconverted people, as we once were. And possibly in this church, there was a high proportion of those who looked like believers and yet were not truly converted. Jesus saw that. It's possible to be heavily involved in the life of the church and not be converted, not be saved. Some of you remember Dick Dyson, who used to come here, speak. Very able speaker, had a very influential ministry. Dick would tell you that he was converted while he was studying for the ministry. Not before, but while. There's another famous story from the past told of a, a minister called the Reverend William Haslam, minister in Truro in Cornwall. And during the course of his ministry, he began to realize that he wasn't a Christian and he was really troubled. And on one Sunday, he was preaching on the text, what think you of Christ? And as he preached, he began to understand there and then in his own pulpit, the gospel. The Spirit of God touched him through his own preaching and he was converted. And it was obvious to the people. And the effect was so noticeable that somebody in the congregation stood up and said, the parson's being converted, hallelujah. And there was a revival that, that lasted for about three years in Truro and Cornwall. It's possible to be heavily involved in the life of the church, but not be converted. So possibly, we talk about nominal churches, possibly Sardis was one of the first nominal churches where there was just a large number of folk who were Christians in name only, but not in reality. Some of you don't know, perhaps, that that, that is what some churches can be like. Maybe you've been here all your, your life. Maybe you've, you've been converted into to churches that have been very much alive, and, and that's not been your experience, but, but it has been the case, and sometimes is. I remember sharing a car journey with a, a retired minister, a great minister who'd spent the last years of his ministry in, in two smaller churches, and he'd gone into those knowing that they were a difficult situation, and as I was asking him about the congregations and what sort of support there was and so on, he was a very gracious man, and he said, you know, oh, well, people were tremendously committed. They would have turned up for things, but, you know, I'm not really sure they grasped the gospel tremendously well. And I, I said to him, well, you, you know, would there have been quite a number of folk there who, who weren't Christians as far as you could tell? And he paused, and he said, well, as far as I could tell... Me and my wife were the only two believers in the church. 
Maybe Sardis was just like that. Somehow, a large proportion of members were unconverted. It, it could be that that's what death means. But maybe Jesus is using death in another way to describe the terrible spiritual state of genuine believers, that the work that they are involved in is, is about to die. They have been engulfed by a spiritual sleepiness unto death. Maybe on balance, that is the situation assumed by verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So, so whatever had, had overtaken them, this spiritual lethargy, had left them in such a sleepy state that they were no use in the battle. When Christ tells them to wake up, it's a term that has sort of military overtones to it. They, they really are like soldiers on the front line who've decided to take a nap. You know, what a picture that is, a battle raging on around them, and there they are just lying down, sleeping bags out, cuddled up, blissfully unaware of what's going on around them. No urgency, no engagement. What would that look like if that was the story in a church? Well, surely it would be where the things of God have little impact upon us, where we were really just going through the motions of being God's people. So, for example, we come to church, and it's the only time in the week we ever hear the Bible read, because we never open it ourselves. Our Facebook posts are up to date, but our Bibles are dusty. Or prayer. Sleeping people don't really pray, do they? they it's, if we pray at all, it's just about things that we, we would be worried about, but there's no intimacy. Our, our, our prayers are a bit like texts between partners, a couple who, who are growing apart, you know, bring milk pick up the kids? Or what about church? If we find a reason not to be here, we grab it, and we manage to rationalize it to ourselves and to those around us. But the reality is it's, it's a bit of an inconvenience because the, the thrust of our lives, the investment of our lives is really somewhere else. Spiritual sleepiness. That, that, that may be what's under the banner here of having a reputation for being alive but are dead. We're just like the wheels in the grinder, still running but running down. And Jesus says to us, waken up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's the problem. What's the solution? What's the remedy? Well, Jesus points out that there is a remedy, and that's tremendous, isn't it? That It's not too late. It's nearly too late, but it's not too late. Jesus, in his mercy, speaks to these people. His warnings to us are a kindness. We've got to know that, that, that when we hear tough bits of the Bible that, that come to us and cut us and hurt us, and we might want to run away or put our fingers in our ears, what a mercy that God speaks to us. And he speaks to these people. There's a series of staccato commands that outline Jesus' path to recovery. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have, found you, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. You can almost imagine Christ grabbing them by the lapels and shaking them, slapping their cheeks. 
And the first step in recovery is an admission of the situation that we're in. This is bad. It's not how it should be. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. What do you think it is that they have received and heard that they need to return to? Almost certainly, I think it is the original apostolic gospel, the gospel message. And maybe that gives us an indication as to how they'd got into this situation. Because as we said earlier, there's no specific cause mentioned here. There's no false teachers luring them into immorality. There's no Jezebel false prophet uh, speaking uh, mistruths into their lives. There doesn't seem to have been significant persecution. What has happened? Is it that, that beginning with the gospel, they have then begun to move so that their focus is not the gospel, but just their being together, just their gathering So the activities of the church have become the things that glue them together, as it were. That's a danger, isn't it? That's why they're still busy, but they'd forgotten the gospel. So you you would never have heard somebody in, in the prayer meeting in Sardis say, do you know, Lord, it's just so great that you've saved us. Because we wouldn't have any other hope apart from you. Or, 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 Lord, we can't come together tonight, and before we, we pray for anything else, we just want to thank you that you've opened our eyes and helped us to see that we are great sinners, but you're a great Savior. Is, the, the, is that what happened? The gospel just got moved on from? You know the old saying that, that, that explains how churches go from being evangelical to liberal? Over the course of three generations, one generation preaches the gospel, one generation assumes the gospel, and then the next generation denies the gospel. Is that where they were? So they needed to go back on on what they had known. Uh, Sardis was, was built on a rocky outcrop, and because of its natural defenses, it was very hard to capture. There was a saying in the ancient world, uh, if something was impossible, it was like trying to capture the Acropolis at Sardis. It was sort of a uh, something you really couldn't do. But it had been captured on, on two occasions, and on both occasions, what had happened was that the guards had just assumed themselves, or perhaps the commanders of the guards, had just assumed that, that no one could possibly climb the cliff at these points. We're Sardis. We're secure. And two times in history, enemy soldiers had climbed the cliffs at exactly those points, and the city had fallen. Is that what had happened to the church as well? Well, we're Sardis. We'll be okay. We've been here for a long time. We don't need to pay attention to the apostolic teaching. We'll be all right. It's so first century. But they needed to repent, Jesus said. Not just feel sorry, not just be worried about where they were, where their statistics were, They needed to turn around because it could be all over. Jesus would see to that. But if you do not wake up, Jesus says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. They would know that in their history, the city had fallen through these unexpected thieves who had climbed up the the walls and, and taken their city. 
And Jesus uses that expression on several occasions, as you were thinking about this morning, to think about his second coming. He will come like a thief in the night. But this is not his second coming. It's just him saying, there is a line down the path along which you are going, and you don't know where it is, but if you cross it, I will say that's enough. And that's it. It will be wrapped up. The lampstand will be removed. And it will be over. The wheels will finally stop turning. The thing is, however, there were some who were faithful in Sardis. Verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes. Sardis had been known for a textile industry and especially the dyeing of material. And so here's another reference that would have hit home. Even in the midst of this terrible spiritual sleepiness, there is a faithful remnant who had not compromised with the culture and, and soiled their, their clothes, as it were. They, they, they'd not sinned by forgetting the gospel. They really were alive even though their church wasn't. And there's been lots of stories of churches who have where things have turned around remarkably and become places where the gospel has just triumphed after years of, of, of hardness and deadness. And so often it's been that there's been a little remnant in the congregation praying. I've known something of that in the past. People praying, saying, Lord, will you bring someone to bring your word back to the heart of our church? People who have stayed and prayed. There were some people like that in Sardis. One wonders how other members of the congregation viewed them. Oh, there's the keen people. They're so narrow. They're the spiritual ones. See if you ever find yourself looking down on somebody who is keen. It's really time to check your heart, isn't it? But Jesus has something in store for those are faithful. So this is the last thing, promise. What's the promise? They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. It's also what he promises to others who overcome. It's an invitation. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. So, so one of the things that we've, we've um, not pointed out, actually, in our way through these uh, letters is that the, the blessings that Jesus promised are often linked to something of his final victory that, that comes later on in Revelation. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 7, thinking about white robes, he says this, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. In Revelation 19, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah, for our God, for, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was giving to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. You see, Jesus says to these folk, there's spiritual sleepiness all around you, but, but you know what? If you're faithful, if you come my way, you, you'll, you'll be with me in glory. You'll be dressed in white robes. That, that final purity that is symbolized by that dress code, 
and that in some way embodies all that you've been able to respond to me in obedience with, that that will be fit for you to wear when the wedding of the Lamb takes place. And you see, too, it says that we'll walk with him. That's a little allusion back to, to Genesis, you remember? God walks with Adam in the cool of the day. So this is saying, you're gonna get, it's going to be like Eden is restored. Fellowship with God. It's Jesus, of course, who says it. Can you imagine being in heaven and Jesus turns over your door and says, let's go for a walk. Does the thought of that make you think, Lord, if that's in store for me, then I'm not going to mess around now. I'm going to give myself to you. Why sleep when you can walk with Jesus? And not only that, but, but what he has for us is absolutely secure. He says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. You see, he has written our names into his book. And the ink is permanent. And not only does he write them in indelibly, he speaks them out to his Father before the angels. Here's the list he's saying to his Father of those who are mine. Very often in my life, when my name has been called out, it's not been good news. You're at the doctors, Nigel McCulloch. School assembly hall, Nigel McCulloch. But here, you'll hear your name with no fear, with no worry, because it is the calling out of those who are redeemed and rescued, and welcomed. Do you ever find yourself thinking this? <sighs> but look at my life. If you knew what I was like, the stuff that's been going on with me, how can my name be there? You ever think that? How can I wear white? I'm so far from that. Do you know later on in Revelation 13, 18, it talks about this book with the names of the redeemed. And it says about the book of the life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, Jesus died so that your name could be written down and called out. So that you could wear white his blood was spilled. Isn't that enough? So here's the question. Why sleep? Why sleep when you can walk with Jesus? Why would you snooze off in the battle? Why would you be insensitive in the war against sin? Why would you keep your eyes closed in the face of the attacks of the enemy? Why would you not be alert to the call to go God's way? Why would you sleepily stumble into sin and compromise? Why would you do that? when you can walk with Jesus, when you can look forward to the day he turns up to your door in heaven and says, let's go for a walk. Let's pray together.
Lord, we really want to believe this. Because we, we, we know that part of us does and part of us doesn't. But we, we pray that you will help us to wake up fully, to be absolutely alert to the battle that we are in, to be given over to this Lord Jesus Christ, who has nothing bad in store for us, but only blessing and glory. How amazing that He should die, that our name should be written down and called out. How amazing that He should want to walk with us. Help us, Lord, to believe it tonight and tomorrow and in the days to come. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.